Um, I think I've shared this before. Let's go back here. There we go. Um, there's a woman by the name of Amber Sharer that is an artist, graphic artist, and she got online with some of the national parks websites and noticed that there were one-star reviews for some of these national parks. And she noticed that some of the comments that people made about these national parks was really quite odd. And here's one of them. So what she decided to do is she decided to create some retro-style posters from those national parks where the captions were from the one-star reviews. So here's what someone had to say about Grand Teton National Park. All I saw was a lake, mountains, and some trees. Um, what's wrong with that person? There is just some sort of a mental breakdown that's taking place there. How do you see the lake, the mountains, and the trees and miss the beauty? And I wonder if, I have no idea because that just is a mindset that's so far from me, but I, I wonder if part of the problem is in what they actually said. They saw a lake, they saw mountains, and they saw trees. And you can see those lots of places. What makes Grand Teton National Park extraordinary is the way that those things come together. And the beauty that is represented in how those things come together. And if you miss that big picture and you only see a lake and mountains and trees, you miss what makes the Grand Tetons the Grand Tetons. We have, we started the book of Romans on February 2nd. And we did the final verse of it last week. And here's my concern, that as we have gone through the book of Romans and we have taken it apart section by section and looked at each of the smaller pieces of it, we are in danger of missing the beauty of the big picture of Romans. So we are going to take the next two weeks and we are going to look at the big picture of Romans. And my prayer is that what the Lord will do is through that process, hit us with the awe and wonder, the beauty, the majesty of the God that is revealed in the book of Romans. Well, let's start way back at the beginning with some background that helps us understand what's going on in the book of Romans. One of the things that we saw is that Romans is almost certainly founded by a group of Jews who had probably come to Christ, or at least been in Jerusalem, if they were not already Christians, at the time of Pentecost. Because the passage in Acts specifically identifies that there were a group of Jews from Rome who were there. And it seems what happened is they then went back to Rome and they founded the Church of Rome. And over time, Gentiles came to know Christ. And so what you had was a church that was led by Jewish leaders and was filled with converts who were Gentiles. And then in AD 49, something significant happened. The emperor Claudius told all the Jews in Rome to get out. And it looks like the reason, by the way, I don't think I've ever said this, it looks like the reason that he did that from, it's not said in the Bible, but we actually have other historical records that say that it was because of controversy within the Jews about a man named Christus. So apparently, assuming that that's referring to Christ, and we think it is, apparently there was a lot, of, a lot going on, a lot of evangelism, a lot of things like that going on within the Jewish community, and it was creating lots of problems. Claudius the emperor gets tired of it and says, all of you Jews, get out. Now, what does that do to the church? All that's left are Gentiles. So now Gentiles who had been the, the younger believers, the people who had, had been under the leadership of the Jews are now in positions of leadership. 
And sometime before AD 57, the Jews are allowed back into Rome, and they come back, and they come back to a church that is now a lot more Gentilish than it was Jewish. And as we went through the book of Romans, we saw that there are a number of issues that Paul raises. Where what, if you understand that background, you see what he's really doing. is He's talking about divisions that happen in the church because you have people with a Jewish background who, who think that things should be Jewish, and you have people with a Gentile background who thinks that maybe that's not as necessary. So that's what's going on when Paul writes the book of Romans. And what Paul does in Romans is he explains how the gospel addresses the issues that are dividing the, the, the church of Rome. And verses 16 and 17 are really the theme of the book of Rome, Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Greek is another way of saying Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Everything else that comes after this, these two verses in the book of Romans is basically building on these verses. It's going to explain why the power of God is revealed in the gospel. It's going to explain why it is the power of salvation and even why salvation is needed. It's going to explain why it, it connects to both Jews and Gentiles, why it's for everybody. It's going to explain why the righteousness of God is revealed, and it's going to explain how we live in light of that gospel. Um, there's a very bright, funny-looking man by the name of Martin Luther. Um, I mean, let's be honest, he's funny-looking. Um, Here's what you need to know about Martin Luther if you're not familiar with him. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. And he came across Romans 16 and 17. And what absolutely blew him away, not in a good way, was this statement. The righteousness of God is revealed. Because here's what he thought. Quite correctly. He is a sinful, broken, corrupt man. Even as a monk, even as a missionary. As a sinful person, you don't want to come face to face with the righteousness of God. Because the righteousness of God is a perfect standard and God is an impartial judge and God's righteousness shows that there is such a thing as right and wrong and we are on the side of wrong. If God's righteousness is revealed, then you realize that we will be punished. We will be judged for everything that we have done that is against the standards and the character of an absolutely perfect, absolutely holy God. And Luther looked at verse 17, and it terrified him. And then he read the rest of Romans. And as he worked through the rest of Romans, he realized that the revelation of God's righteousness is really good news. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. And as Martin Luther came to that conclusion, it changed his life. Frankly, it changed the church and it changed the world because out of that moment came the Reformation. And we are here because Martin Luther came to grips with Romans 1, verse 17. So here's how that's developed through the book of Romans, and we saw this quite a bit through the series. The first 11 chapters are, are about how God gives righteousness, and that is broken down into four sections. Why we need righteousness, what righteousness is, how the righteousness that God gives us affects us, and why that gift of righteousness was rejected. And this morning what we are going to do is we are going to do all 11 chapters of that section. And some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, we're just going straight from this sermon to the congregational meeting at four. And some of you are thinking, you mean you could have done all 11 chapters in one sermon all along? Um, here's the theme of these 11 chapters. Our relationship with God 
which is another way of saying righteousness. Those aren't the same thing, but you can't have a relationship with God if you're not righteous, and you can't be righteous without a relationship with God. They go hand in hand. A relationship with God is a gift from God. And we're going to take a look at each of these four sections, and as we look at how they work together, what I hope we see is the beauty of the big picture of who God is and what he is doing, as revealed in Romans 1 through 11. Well, the first thing that Paul does is, is he has to explain why is it that we need God to give us righteousness. And the answer to that is because of where we start. Everyone starts as helplessly unrighteous. He is showing that we are in far worse shape than we think we are. We think that we're doing pretty good. We think that we're, we're morally okay people, but what he is showing is that deep down we are hopelessly and helplessly corrupt. And he develops his thought by showing four truths in this first section of Romans 1, 18 through 3.20. And here they are. The first thought is that the uh, unrighteous face God's judgment and wrath. And we see this in 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Remember he just said that the gospel is revealed one verse, or the righteousness of God is revealed one verse before this, and now he's saying it's the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Remember, what we talked about is we tend to think of the wrath of God as God's overreaction because our wrath tends to be an overreaction. But that's not what God's wrath is. God's wrath is the perfectly appropriate, just response to evil and sin in the world. If God did not respond to evil and sin, then God would not be a holy and righteous God. But he brings his perfect justice to hold account to all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Every thought that you and I have, every word, every action, everything that we leave undone that should have been done, all of that is going to stand against the standard of perfect justice. And God will deal with it. And here's how bad the situation is. The right response to a holy God, to our moral corruption, is his wrath. That is where everyone starts. Then Paul goes on to say, this judgment from God is actually a just judgment. That's the next part of this section. It says that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. God does not make mistakes in his judgment. When you and I come face to face with a perfectly righteous and holy God, I will tell you what our response is going to be. Our response is going to be, I never understood what righteousness and goodness look like until this moment. And now that I see it, even the smallest thing that I have done, the smallest thought that I have had that were inappropriate, I now see them for the horrors that they are. And I agree with you, God, that I stand unrighteous. Paul then shows that God's final judgment is impartial. This was, this was kind of a, a, because we're dealing with a Jewish background here, this was kind of a weird section of, of the letter, as you might remember, to talk about. And he, he talks about two different groups of people. He talks about the people um, who he says are circumcised or the circumcision, and then he talks about people who um, are not circumcised. And that's just really a way of saying the Jews and the Gentiles. Those are the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And what Paul is arguing in this section, as you remember, is that everyone, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, everyone has to stand before the judgment of God. Here's another way of thinking about this, because here's how the Jews would have thought about this when this was written. The Jews are the very religious people. The Gentiles are the unreligious people. So one of the things we said when we talked about this passage was, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church. It doesn't matter if you were at church every Sunday, you were at youth group every Sunday. It doesn't matter if you were Bill Parker and you became a missionary. You are still accountable before God for your unrighteousness. All of us, all of us have to recognize that there is a moral code, the law, and everyone is equally accountable to that code. It doesn't matter how religious or unreligious you are. Everyone equally is held up to that standard. 
And then here is the death blow of this first section. Everyone faces God's judgment and wrath. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. There is not anyone who can stand in front of a perfectly just God, a completely impartial God, and think that they are righteous. No one has met the standard of the code. So here's the big picture of this first section. What does Paul say in the first section of Romans? He says this. We have a moral condition before God, and that moral condition is that we are unrighteous. That moral condition puts us in a certain type of relationship with God. We are under his wrath. And that has implications for us now and for the future. We are people without hope if that is our status. We have proved our own guilt by our actions, our thoughts, our thinking. There are no free passes. There are no excuses. And there is no escape from the fact that we will be held accountable for sin. See, the big picture of Romans starts with a very ugly mud pit. You will miss the beauty of Romans if you miss where it begins. If you miss that it begins with a desperate situation that we cannot get out of. Part of the problem that we have today is that our culture, including our Christian culture, wants us to overlook the mud pit, wants us to cut it out of the picture. It wants us to think that we are basically good, moral, and decent people at our core. And, and as I look at people talking about, and I'm specifically thinking of Minnesota, that they will replace police officers with social workers That thinking makes sense if you start with the assumption that people are fundamentally good and not corrupt. If you start with that assumption, then what people need is help out of their situation only. There is nothing within them that has to be fixed or addressed. But Paul and the gospel doesn't start there. The gospel says there is something wrong with us that is deeper than what a social worker can fix. It's not just a matter of changing our circumstances. And so we as a culture live with this massive frustration of why we aren't the people that we think we can be and should be. It's because we don't acknowledge how corrupt we are. And so we miss how much we need the rest of Romans. Why do we need the gift of righteousness from God? It's because of where we all start. We are helplessly corrupt and unrighteous. So then what exactly is the gift of righteousness that we receive from God? Again, Paul's going to develop this in four sections, but we can summarize it with this one statement. It is right standing with God through the cross. That is what righteousness is. It is right standing with God. It is the declaration that we are right with God and it's achieved through the cross. And so Paul develops this point again in, in four statements. We, he has revealed on the cross, God's righteousness is revealed on the cross, and it is received by faith. There's this funny word here that we don't use very often. It's the word propitiation. It refers to a sacrifice that would appease someone's wrath. Right? So we just saw that we are under wrath. The next thing that Paul does is, is says there is a solution to that. There is a way that that wrath can be appeased, and it is the cross. Jesus' death on the cross redirects God's wrath towards Jesus and away from us. And the way that we receive that benefit, the way that, it is re, uh, that wrath is redirected from us to Jesus is through faith. It is received by faith. What does that mean? It means it is confidence. It is the, the conviction that Jesus' death was enough to redirect God's wrath from you to him. It is giving up the idea that we can remove God's wrath through our own efforts at goodness or through trying to be religious enough. It is refusing to continue to deny that there is an ugly, muddy pit that we are in and we can't get out of on our own and that we must put our faith 
in Jesus and what he did on the cross. Now, here's the problem. Very religious people, like us, don't like this statement. It's like, wait a minute, what do you mean we don't like this statement? Here's what Paul was dealing with next in Romans. Paul goes on to make the statement that, look, righteousness with God was always based on faith. And again, this is another section that's seemed odd to us in Romans chapter 4 because it's very Jewish. But here's how, here's how we looked at that and thought about that. Very religious people want to think that they really can be good enough. And that's what Paul was dealing with in his day. And I can tell you, it's what all of us deal with in our hearts at some level. We want to think that we can be good enough. And Paul makes the point that getting out from God's wrath was never, not even with Abraham, the founder of the Jewish faith, was never about how good or religious you were. It was always, always based on faith. And that, that Abraham's goodness and righteousness grew out of that faith. The result of being declared righteous through our faith in Jesus is then that we have peace with God. And that's what righteousness is. It's a restored relationship. It is peace with God. Remember, one of the things that we've talked about when we talked about peace is that it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Peace also refers to, and actually is better understood as thriving, thriving in our relationships with God, thriving in our relationships with one another. And so what you have here is Paul saying, look, the wrath of God has been redirected towards Jesus and it has been replaced by peace with God. And this leads to one of the most stunning parts of all of Scripture. God's righteousness is the undoing of the damage caused by Adam. God's righteousness takes all of the pain, brokenness, frustration that we deal with every day. It says, I begin to undo that. One man's righteousness, Adam's sin, brought death that reigned from then on. And that is why we have physical death. That is why we have COVID-19. That is why we have broken relationships, and that's why we have broken lives. So let's try to bring this into focus for a second. I want you to stop and think for a second. What is the most painful situation that you are dealing with in your life right now? Don't say it out loud. What is the greatest injustice that you are experiencing in your life right now? What is one sin or moral struggle in your life that just keeps winning? Whatever you answer to those questions, that's all the result of death reigning because of Adam and his sin. And the beauty of the picture of Romans is that God is in the process of unraveling, undoing, if we want to say it, defunding all the corruption and ugliness that is behind every one of those situations that you thought of. And a day will come when those things won't even exist. The ugly mud pit will be removed. So here's how we summarize the second part. We saw in 118 through 320 that moral corruption characterized our moral condition. We are unrighteous. But starting in Romans 3, Paul develops a thought that righteousness is what defines our moral condition, and that is achieved through faith. Our relationship with God that was once characterized by wrath is now a relationship with God that is characterized by peace because of the cross. And where we did not have hope, we now have hope that God is going to undo all the ramifications of sin and death that is in the world. You can start to see how Paul is painting a stunning landscape in Romans. The difference between these two columns, by the way, 
his faith. This is the person who has not trusted in Christ, and this is the person who has. Why do we need the gift of righteousness? Because we are helplessly unrighteous. What is the gift of righteousness? It is God declaring us righteous and at peace with him because of the cross. And part of what makes this landscape of Romans even more stunning is what God's gift of righteousness does to us. We saw this starting in chapter 6. And I would like to suggest that um, this next section may be the heart of the book of Romans. And if you want the challenge of memorizing a long section of Scripture, this is a really good one to memorize. Because what Paul is going to argue in this is that the way that God's gift of righteousness affects us is by freeing us from sin to be unbreakably united to God. And here's how he develops this. This is actually even a little more complex, but here are the thoughts. First, the gift of God's righteousness frees us from the power of sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is no longer our master. Before putting faith in Jesus, we are hardwired to rebel against God. Our natural responses to life were going to be about protecting self, about building up ourselves, about loving self, instead of loving God and others and glorifying God through our lives. What came automatically from us very often was against God's character. And God's gift of righteousness frees us from the slavery of those automatic responses. And then it replaces those automatic responses with something else. And that's the next point Paul develops as, we, as he moves through this section. We, it, the, the gift of God's righteousness frees us to serve a new master. We are now slaves of righteousness. Slavery to sin has been replaced by slavery to righteousness. Our automatic responses to life can now be responses of righteousness. In addition, God's gift of righteousness removes a major source of condemnation. It frees us from the condemnation of performance. So one of the things that we saw is when he talks about the written code or when he talks about the law, that's another way of saying that that we had to be good enough, we had to perform well enough in order to earn God's acceptance. That was the thinking of that time. And Paul is saying we have been released from that. We no longer need to live with the constant question of, am I good enough for God? And the reason we no longer need to live with that question is because we know the answer. The answer is no. You are not good enough for God. You never have been. You never will be. Stop trying to prove that you are to yourself, to others, and God. We are released from living this constant pressure of, I have to be good enough or God's going to reject me. Because you see what Paul has already established is that the righteousness that we have has never, ever depended on our work. It's always depended on the work of Christ. Now Paul will then go on to talk about that point and say, here's how this plays out in daily life. He will go on to say that sin remains a powerful influence in us. It's like, well, wait a minute. You just said that we're not enslaved to sin. It's not our master anymore. How does that work? Um, I have a uh, powerful metaphor that happened to me because of several people in this church this past week. Um, I'm trying to be good about what I eat. And then multiple people in this church put on Facebook, directed towards me, my name was tagged, that Wild Honey Creamery has apple pie ice cream. (laughs) At that point, when I saw that, my brain cells turned off. They went on holiday. And my taste buds took over. And they moved me into my car. They drove me downtown to Wild Honey Creamery. 
they walked me through the door. And nice of them, they paid for the ice cream. Trying to be good about what I eat. But you see, there are still these built-in automatic responses that I have. I see the temptation because so many people in this church put it in front of me. Um, And even though I have a different mindset, a different way of looking at the world, I'm trying to be good. There are still impulses that work in me that are powerful in moving me in my action, my thinking, and my values. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The power of, of sin still has a powerful influence in us. But despite that, we are still free from the condemnation of performance. And because, again, Romans 8, 1 through 11 is extraordinary. Because when God looks at us, what he sees is even when we give in to those things that are wrong, he looks at us and he sees Christ. He looks at us and he sees the perfect life that Christ lived. And Paul explains there's this great exchange that takes place when we come to Christ. All of our sin gets credited to Jesus on the cross. And all of his righteousness gets credited to us. So when God looks at us, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. Not that he still doesn't conform us and change us and transform us, but in terms of our relationship with him. And God doesn't stop there. The picture gets more stunning. God doesn't just say no condemnation and then send us on our way. We are adopted by God as his heirs. Um, this probably won't surprise you, but I have friends um, that have had to call me when they were released from jail. And um, they had to call me because they were released, but they had no one to come pick them up and take them anywhere. And um, you look at these folks and say, they paid their penalty for what they did. They are no longer under the condemnation for their crime. But they were left on their own. They were left to face what was in front of them on their own. Sometimes, inadvertently, that is exactly what we teach God does for us. That God saved us, and then he just stepped back and watches to see if we're going to blow it again. That's not what God does. God saves us, and then he adopts us as his children, as his heirs. He brings us into his family. We are called his child by him. Every blessing that we need is provided for us. Everything that we need is provided for us. And God does more than that. We have hope for where God is taking us. He has a journey and destination for us that outweighs all the corruption, all the evil, all the pain that we have in this present world. And what he does instead is give us his glory, the wonder and beauty of God's character. That's what will be shown That's what will be revealed to us. And I would say that's not just in heaven, although that is there. It even begins happening now. I grew up in the mountains of Oregon. One of the mountains that I like to climb, it's hike. Let's not overstate this. Um, There's a mountain called Mount McLaughlin. But even though I'd say hike, this was not an easy mountain. This was hard work. A lot of loose rock. It took you hours. It was high elevation. Um... You can only do it a couple months out of the year because the rest of the time it was completely covered in snow. Um, and it's always partially covered in snow every part of the year. So it was hard work. And it was painful. And then you got to the top. And you look around. And you see the glory. And all of a sudden, all of that hard work 
that pain. It was worth it. That's what he's talking about here. It is worth it to follow the example of Bill and Linda Parker and to walk with God for a lifetime. It's worth it. Is it easy? No. Is it pain-free? No. Is it comfortable? No. But what you get is the revelation of God's glory, and that is worth it. Finally, the gift of righteousness gives us unbreakable unity with God through Jesus. There is nothing, nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is not a single moment you will ever be separated from God and his love. There is nothing, no person, no circumstance that can separate you from God. You are in an unbreakable unity with God that nothing can separate. So here's what Paul has said in this section. We are free from the power of sin. We are free to serve a new master, which is righteousness. We are free from the condemnation of always having to be good enough. We still are going to battle the influence of sin. But God looks at us and says, I see the righteousness of Christ in you. We are adopted by God as children and heirs. We have hope for where God is taking us. And we have an unbreakable unity with God. And here's my question. Is that how you actually see what is true of you? See, one of our problems is that we look at this and we say, that looks good, but I'm not sure it really applies to me. Here's maybe even a more common problem. We are like the person who goes to the Grand Tetons and stands in the parking lot and talks on her cell phone. We can say we've been there, but we haven't seen its beauty because we are too focused on other things. And we do that with the gospel. I'm saved, going to heaven. And then we just move on as if that's all the gospel has to do with us. And we have missed so much of the beauty, the stunning depth and power of the gospel. When you step back and think about this amazing gift that God wants to give, it is remarkable that anyone would reject it. Paul ends this section by saying that's exactly what people do. And we're not going to go through this section even in as much detail as we just did. Because part of what makes this section difficult is, is he's really talking about the rejection of God's gift by the Jewish people. And then he's going to go on to argue that despite their rejection, God's gift of righteousness is still available and God's character is untouchable. And he explains that the reason that the gift of righteousness was rejected is because of disobedient hearts that refuse to believe that righteousness is actually a gift. So here's this section broken down. Paul starts by pointing out that God is both sovereign and merciful. God is in control and his character is good. The problem is that people refuse to believe that righteousness is something that comes by faith. They want to believe that they can have some credit for it. Another part of the problem is at the very core of who we are, our hearts are disobedient and they are contrary to God. Rejection of God is at their core. Despite this, God did not reject his people. God still pursues his people, and God reveal, will reveal his mercy to his people. And one of the dangers that Paul warns us against is the sense of, of taking a snapshot of what God is doing and saying, now I understand everything. You've only got one frame of a movie. And Paul's saying that movie is still playing out with what God is doing with his people. C.S. Lewis wrote something that 
when you first read it, sounds very controversial. And then stop and think about it. What he wrote is that no one wants unconditional love. No one does. Here's his point. Unconditional love wounds our pride. We want to believe that God's love, it, it actually depends on something about us, and we have that something. And that was true in Paul's day, and it is true in our day. One of the major reasons our culture rejects the gospel is because the gospel starts with the declaration of you are not good enough. But the good news that Paul wraps up this section with is that God does not stop pursuing. And that gives us hope for ourselves and for our loved ones that continue to reject God's gift of righteousness. Okay, well, we just covered the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And I'd like to suggest this principle to take away. Give up the lies of good enough. There are three lies that we cling to. One is that I can be good enough for God. Right, and that lie is countered in the first and fourth sections that we just looked at. Why we need God's righteousness and why it is rejected. And this lie damages us deeply. And I can speak to this from personal experience. For years and years of my life, although I grew up in the church, I grew up wanting to follow Christ. I knew all the right answers. I lived with constant fear and pressure that I had to be good enough every day or God would reject me. I knew assurance of salvation. I knew it all intellectually. But in my daily life, how I lived was waiting for one more mistake that I would make, one more sin that I would commit, and then that would be enough for God and he'd walk away. I was believing the lie that it was even possible for me to be good enough for God. We need to give up the lie that my sinful life is good enough. That's what Paul is addressing in the second and third sections, what righteousness is and what it does. God does not leave us to live in the mud pit. He wants to remove the power of sin that still influences us. And the third lie is that others must be good enough for me. That's actually what he's going to do in the rest of Romans that we'll look at next week. But I would suggest to you that this is a form of denying the gospel that is at the heart of almost all the divisions that we have in our church. There is an underlying assumption that because you disagree with me or you've hurt me or you've disappointed me or you've let me down, that that is a justifiable reason to break fellowship. And thank God, literally, thank God that that is not how God looks at us. How do we respond to Romans 1 through 11? I think we examine our life and how it aligns more with the good enough lies than the gospel. Where do you believe that you actually can be good enough for God? Well, you can tell where you believe that you have to be good enough for God to accept you? Where do you believe that your sinful life is, is okay, it's good enough? You can tell by where you treat sin, it's not a big deal. Where do you believe that others have to be good enough for you? You can tell by what you're willing to divide over. The cure for all of those things is the point of Romans 1 through 11. Our fellowship with God is based solely on God's grace. And the implication for us today is that we must recognize the damage that is caused by our good enough thinking. See, the more the truth of this point sinks into us, the more 
likely we are to reject these thoughts that we have to earn God's acceptance, the more likely we are to reject the idea that I can be satisfied with this life of sin in, that just seems to constantly work against me, and the more likely we are to reject the notion that others have to be good enough for me, and we will show them the same grace that we receive from God. This has been a year of a lot of people trying to prove themselves. A lot of people, frankly, sitting in their sinfulness, content to be divisive, cruel, or speak badly about one another. It's been a year of demanding that others meet my standards. And I think Romans 1 through 11 calls us to reflect on that. Here are some suggestions for how to do this. First, memorize Romans 6, 5 through 6. Saw these verses earlier, powerful verses about our unity with Christ and what God is doing in our lives. As I argue, the Christian life is always lived in what Jesus called us to do, repent, believe, and follow him. We must constantly be identifying and confessing a sin that we are clinging to that, that we think is more important than following Jesus. We must believe the truth of the gospel instead of good enough thinking. And we must follow, we must live as Jesus lived and one of the ways we can work on that is by scheduling time every day to pray for a deeper conviction about our unity with Christ. And just something I started doing, meet with a guy on Thursday mornings and just past Thursday morning, one of the things we talked about doing is um, Let's set aside some time every day. So at 11 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and 7 o'clock, the alarm on my phone goes off, and it reminds me to stop and pray, and to stop and pray about this. I encourage you to think about doing something like that. You can find some stunning pictures of the Grand Tetons online. You can order large, beautiful posters of the Grand Tetons. And you can put that up on your wall and you can look at it and say, that is remarkable. And it is. But it is not the same as going to the Grand Tetons and experiencing it firsthand. Living it, breathing it. Here's the problem with this sermon. The best I can do is hold up a picture and say, this is what Paul has said about who our God is and how he relates to us. And we can all agree it's remarkable. But I can't replace actually stepping into life with God and living it and experiencing it. And as you do that, you will begin to see more clearly more fully, more radiantly, the wonder and beauty of who your God is. And there are three groups of people who are here today. One group is sitting here thinking, I have no clue what you even mean by a relationship with God. I don't understand a thing about the beauty of God. And you are a group Everyone else in this room has been exactly there, been right there. I think everyone else would say, get to know Jesus. Let us introduce you to him. There's a second group here that is just new on their journey, and they are trying to understand what life with God actually looks like. What does it mean to live in the Grand Tetons and see it and be there in person. One of the best things you can do is go talk to Bill Parker. Not to put all the pressure on him, but go talk to any of the people in here who have been walking with Christ a little longer, a little farther, and say, will you teach me And the third group is the people like Bill Parker who have walked a little farther, a little longer. 
and you have an assignment too. And it's to take those first two groups and say, let me show you the beauty and wonder of what Paul's talked about in Romans 1 through 11. Whichever group you are in, I would invite you to come talk with me or any of the folks who are going to be up here at the front at the end because we want to help you take that step in your journey. Why don't we close in prayer and ask the Lord to help us to live these responses. Will you stand with me as we pray? Father, we are amazed at your wonder and your beauty that is revealed to us in the book of Romans. Lord, we are amazed that you looked at us when we had nothing about us that would be of value to you, that would be of interest to you, that would cause you to say, I need that person on my team. We are corrupt, rebellious, sinful, weak people. You looked at all of that. You looked at every secret that we want to hide. And you said, I love you. And I pursue you. And I pursue you so passionately that I will send my son to the cross so that the wrath would go to him and not to you. And three days later, he was raised again so that new life can be built in us now and for eternity. Lord, we are amazed by that. And we confess that too often we are like the person on the cell phone in the parking lot of the Grand Tetons that we are just distracted by other things and we miss the beauty. We confess that we take for granted the amazing gift of righteousness that you give us. And Lord, we thank you that part of the gift of righteousness is the forgiveness for these very things that we have to confess right now. Lord, we ask for your strength and power as we leave here that we would know you better and that we would better see your beauty and wonder. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.